You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking something really exciting, and that's going to be whether or not you can use the short-term rental loophole or the exception, as some people like to call it, without any guest stays. So after, you know, 2022, the year is just closed, people are asking these questions, you know, can you use it if I place a property in service at the end of 2022? Can I still use that property as a short-term rental even if I had no guest stays? And we're going to find out the answer. But you know, if you this is your first time listening to this podcast, this is actually going to be a pretty advanced topic as it relates to short-term rental. So go ahead and uh, take a look at the short-term rental episodes we do have on the podcast if you're unfamiliar. We have the short-term rent. You could find it on the podcast feed. It's going to be STR 01, 02, 03. And, and I think we have six or seven of them. The first three are, are released back to back and are probably going to lay the foundation for the short-term rental strategy if you're unfamiliar. So again, go back and check those out if you haven't already. And we also did discuss this in our Facebook group. If you're not a member of our Facebook group, uh, a lot of times these conversations that take place in the Facebook group end up bubbling up and making it onto the podcast. So you can join that group. It's a free group www.facebook.com slash group slash tax smart investors and you know, click the button and we'll see you inside. So Justin, could you just kind of like take us a brief overview, quick recap of the short-term rental loophole for anybody who may be unfamiliar here, and uh, then we'll kind of dive into and we'll break down whether or not you can do it without any guest days. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you that aren't aware, uh, like Tom said, more uh, in-depth explanation in the earlier uh, short-term rental episodes that we've done. But brief recap is that the the short-term rental loophole, so to speak, is outlined under Treasury Reg 1.469-1TE3. And it essentially states that a rental property is not considered a rental activity if the average stay is seven days or less, or if there is a average stay of 30 days and there is significant personal services being provided in addition to that. So the question sort that we get very regularly stems from, well, I bought a short-term rental in towards the end of the year, say October, and I really had the intention of trying to get it booked, get at least as much as I could before the end of the year. But I had to do a lot of you know work on it in the on the front ends to be able to get it ready to get it ready for being leased. And what happens if I didn't get the property actually booked on you know Airbnb, VRBO, what have you, a few times before the end of the year? Is that okay uh, if I don't have any bookings? And and just before we actually like dive into all of that, because that's a great lead up uh, for our newer listeners, new or newer listeners. The significance of this seven days or less rental is that you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional in order to utilize the losses from your short-term rental activity. Uh, you just have to materially participate in the short-term rental activity. Now, we have gone over this in detail uh, in this in a whole series that we've done on this podcast. So if you actually scroll back in time on the TaxSmart REI podcast and find the STR series will explain it to you top to bottom in detail but the point is that most landlords they can't use their rental losses because the losses are suspended they're passive losses so you can't use your rental losses to offset your regular income 
but with a short-term rental, assuming that you meet the seven-day test and that you materially participate, you can use the rental loss against your regular income. You don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. And real estate professional status is the big blocker for landlords, for long-term rental landlords. So I just wanted to preface that for our new or newer listeners, but go check out those podcast episodes uh, way back um, a year ago. One at this point. So yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it's on the feed. You'll be able to see them. It's STR01. If you just scroll down the podcast, feed, you'll be able to find them. I think STR1, 2, and 3 are the most popular ones out of the, out of the yeah. three and really lay the foundation for everything. Yeah. So Justin, so I, I know one of the issues that that we one of the questions around this we get is uh, from investors around place and service, right? We know that when a property is placed in the service, it's typically rent ready and listed for rent. And when that happens, you could start depreciating the asset. So a lot of investors, you know, they seem to think that if you place a property in the service, that it should still be eligible for the short-term rental loophole. Would you be able to take us maybe down a path of why some investors think that? Like, is it intention or is it something else? And then kind of we can break down and go further into the tax court case that you found. Sure. A lot of times when with a lot of different topics around real estate, intent is called into question. And in some cases, it can be given a lot more weight than in other cases. And some of the confusion, I would say, where this kind of stems from is that the IRS's definition for whether or not a property is placed in a service as you said, it essentially says that if the taxpayer has placed the property in a condition of state or readiness and availability. So we have, you know, of course, you know, expanded on that a little bit to say that you know, the property is essentially it's rent ready, it's habitable, and ideally you've listed it as available for rent. But nowhere in that definition in the in the tax code does it actually say that you must have a tenant in the building in order for the property to be considered placed in a service. So that idea right there is what a lot of investors will kind of latch on to with this premise of, okay, I did get my property ready. I did get it listed on Airbnb, VRBO. I just didn't happen to get any bookings yet. And, and hoping that that it will suffice at the bare minimum to be able to claim it as a, a short-term rental. But the contention with that position is that how exactly can you prove that the property was a short-term rental if you don't have anything to average? There's nothing to put into that fraction or into that equation to divide by. You have zero stays. So uh, that has been the, I would say, like the looming question that we have had for quite some time. And we have always taken the position that you need to have some stays in order to actually calculate that average. And happily, what we were able to confirm recently is a very, very recent court case came out. And this was uh, Rogerson v. Commissioner. It occurred last summer, uh, probably came out a little bit later when it was finally published. But among many, many other things in this court case that were quite interesting, one thing that was addressed specifically was the taxpayer was trying to rent out. Uh, it was It was actually yachts in this case, as opposed to a piece of real estate. But the code section for short-term rentals is specifically addressed. And the tax court said specifically that without any customer use of the tangible property, it is impossible as required by the regulations to determine the average period of customer use for the property. So I would say there you have it. They couldn't have said it in a more direct or more black and white sort of fashion. Right, right. So, so basically what's happening is a lot of investors, they believe because 
if you look at the definition of place and service, right, it says when it's ready to be used for its intended purpose. And they're trying to rely on that and saying, oh, look, my short-term rental, I'm intending to use it for a short-term rental. Because of that, that should be enough. That's what a lot of investors want to have happen here. And, you know, to your point. Right, because it typically happens at the end of the year, right? So I I bought a rental, I bought a short-term rental, and I'm able to place it into service, meaning it's I'm advertising it and it's ready to be occupied say middle of December and and I don't get any stays for the year, right? So nobody books. They don't book Christmas, they don't book New Year. The question is, can I still call it a short-term rental? And the answer is no from this case, right? Right. Basically what it's saying is just because you had it available for its specific assigned function, in other words, short-term rental, that that's not enough because if you look at the exception, the definition of the exception, it's an average customer use of say in this in this example seven days or less, and without any guest stays, you can't possibly determine that average. And that's exactly what the court determined in this case, and basically saying you need to have customer use to establish that. And, and to your point about intent, on the flip side, if it's a long term rental, then I could in theory place it into service without actually renting it as long as it's available to use for its specifically assigned function and it's been advertised, right? So I don't have to necessarily rent it to be a long-term rental and it could still be placed in service. But for the short-term rental, you do. You do have to rent it. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's, it seems it appears because of this specific exclusion from the rental activity is that seven average customer period. The average customer use is seven days or less. Like you need to have that to meet this exception. And without that, you don't meet the exception. It's just, it would just be considered, I I suppose, or so it appears a regular rental activity as any Mm. other, or, you know, in the very least, I would imagine that's what would be argued and what appears to have been argued here. and, And the court decided it. Right. And I I think it's important to really just understand what we're like, what we're dealing with is there's, there's really two different, completely different sections of the code that are addressing this. And uh, in that it is under a specific section where the place and service definition is residing. Whereas with that short-term rental exception, it quite literally is that it's an exception, um, but it is outlined under a code section that, which is addressing the definition of a rental activity. So these those two things are are very unrelated. And that is kind of one of the more, I would say, like the subtleties that we run into with a lot of some of these more complex scenarios with real estate is that it's it, it may be one activity, but we're probably needing to reference, you know, two, if not multiple different code sections to really address how is this property really going to be treated uh, when it comes to like the tax return? Yeah, that's a very good point. Did they in the case, did they say how many times you need to rent it? Or they just said you have to rent it? Unfortunately, no, they they didn't throw out a minimum there. They simply just stated that because he didn't have any uh, any customer uses that they wouldn't be able to calculate it. That makes sense. Now, you mentioned there are some other interesting things in the case. Any that stick out that you want to share? Sure. So there is uh, seven different material participation tests. And a lot of times we specifically look at three of them for rentals because they're very, very quantifiable and a little bit less gray. They leave less room for interpretation. This particular court case, though, brought up one that is not used as often, and it is the five out of the last 10 years. Um, uh, So it's referred to a lot of times as the five out of 10 test. And essentially, the way that that one works is if you have materially participated in an activity for five out of the last 10 years, you're considered to be materially participating in, in the year in question. 
So that can allow you to potentially be, say, not materially participating in year seven. But if you were in one through five, you'd be meeting that five out of last 10 years rule. I've talked to like business owners about this, right? And it appears what ends up happening is they build their business, right? And then they want to step out, right? And then this precludes them from saying stepping out of their business, making it passive in year six, for example, and then going ahead and buying a multifamily property and just using the passive losses against it. And that appears to be what this is kind of intended for. You were going right to where I was going, brother. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same thing. I was like, okay, so it's what it's really doing. And, and I don't know all the use cases of the five out of the 10 year rule. But what it's really doing is preventing you from building a business and then one day saying, you know what, now I want passive income. I want to flip this to passive income so I can go build a real estate portfolio and have all my rental losses offset my passive income. You can't do that with the five out of the 10 year test. Right. And that's exactly what this taxpayer in in a few other fashions tried to do was to say that, well, okay, if, if my rental activities are passive and my losses will be suspended... What can I do to essentially convert some of my other income into passive income by saying, well, I am no longer materially participating in this wing or this arm of one of my other businesses that is actually generating a lot, a substantial amount of of income. That way he could claim that large amount of passive income and thereby be able to absorb the passive losses. And the court countered with that to say you know, too bad your, your business. Uh, we, we know based off of testimony among all of your staff and executives that work there, that you were materially participating in this business for several years leading up to the years in question. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause I don't think, I mean, that's definitely a trap. It's a material participation yeah. trap, right? And m- most of the time we think about material participation as being a great thing, but this five out of, uh, out of uh, 10 can really hurt you if you're not planning for it the right way. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind's already racing. Like, how do we how do we put yeah. content out on this? But like, who's who's looking for it? <laughs> who, who's searching for this thing, right? Well, and that's that's exactly. I know I've honestly told a lot of clients that, and uh, just uh, you know, in the past, is that some of these material participation tests really are crafted to not just restrict you from claiming material participation, but in some cases, being able to require that you claim material participation on certain activities. As much as we don't like the IRS, they've, you know, seems like on this particular topic, they thought through a lot of different potential scenarios that that you could use. Yeah. And I just want to throw in there too, a lot of times we focus on the first three, you know, the 500 hours, doing substantially everything yourself, and then spending more than 100 hours and no one else spends more than you. Because a lot of times people are coming into the real estate game, they're either new or they're looking to materially participate for the first time. And those are the ones that are most relevant. You know, very rarely are we in a position where we're advising somebody to say, hey, you know, you've been a you know real estate professional, for example, for so long that this actually becomes an issue, right? So th- that's kind of why we focus on those three, on those top three for anybody who's wondering if you're looking to use this for the first time, like this five out of 10 test is not going to be really relevant for you unless you're going to be materially participating for an extended period of time and eventually you plan to exit. That's something that you may want to talk about with your advisor. But uh, yeah, when you're just getting started, it's really those top three that matter. All right. So... What was the name of the case again, Justin? Uh, it's Rogerson v. Commissioner. Rogerson v. Commissioner. So if you're listening, the summary is if you buy a short-term rental, you have to rent it on a short-term basis in order to have a chance of claiming the loss is non-passive. You do have to materially participate. We go over those rules in detail in our short-term rental series. So again, just scroll back on our podcast episodes to find those. Those are very good series. 
uh, tell you all about the rules and how you can claim these losses from your short-term rental investing activities. But we do have confirmation. You have to rent it. You have to rent it. They didn't say how many times. So I presume at least once uh, we tell clients at least twice, or I guess investors at least twice, um, just to lock in that average. But it's got to be seven days or less. The rental, the, the customer use of your rental has to be seven days or less in order to have a chance of qualifying this as a non-passive activity without qualifying as a real estate professional, which is extremely hard to do, especially if you are working, if not impossible. So that is the high-level summary. Did I miss anything there? We've had we've seen some tax returns from investors in our network, I will say, uh, <laughs> where their CPAs are are logging all these rentals as short-term rentals without any stays. There's no revenue. That we we thought before we even were aware of this case found that to be an extremely aggressive position because again, for the same reason, like you know, how can you calculate an average stay of seven days or less if there's no customer use? But now, you know, we have this court case that confirms it, which is authoritative, right? So it's it's something that uh, if you're out there doing that, you have to watch out for. If you're going to use this strategy, make sure that you get that average stay of seven days or less. Make sure you get those customer uses in there. Otherwise, you know, it's it's very likely if you got to the point of tax court, not going to be considered a short-term rental activity, just like this yacht in this particular case. I would just like it kind of expand or add to that a little bit is that, like I said, the, the court case itself doesn't uh, mention a minimum number of stays, but like Brandon said, you know, the, the more the better uh, to be able to substantiate your, your position. And, you know, we don't want to be getting overly aggressive with, you know, applying that rule. All right. So I got two more questions. So this court case, what was the result? Did, did they like change it to a long-term rental or what did they end up doing? Uh, they wound up just disallowing it entirely. To be honest, oh. the, the taxpayer was um, really pretty erroneously claiming these as rentals because during the three years in question that of, a lot of times they're looking at a three-year period during audits is that the taxpayer was not renting these out at all. And his argument was that, well, I, I had an intent to rent them out during these periods. Uh, I had a um, I had contracts with this company that uh, prevented them from ever being able to lease them out for more than seven days at a time. But during those periods, he he didn't have any rental income coming in at all. So surprisingly, I thought one of the uh, you know the interesting points like on this this particular case was not including penalties. The amount that he wound up being underpaid by when they actually wrapped the whole thing up was just shy of five point six million dollars. Mm. So, um, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, last question. I have seen in a Facebook group that I will not disclose the name of, not our Facebook group, mind you, TechSmart Real Estate Investor Facebook group, not that one. That's the good one. It's a good one. <laughs> but I, I, I've seen, I've seen in a Facebook group that people were swapping days at their short-term rentals. So it would be like if I owned a, a short-term rental and Tom owned a short-term rental, he and I would message each other and we'd say, hey, book mine for one night and I'll book yours for one night. And it didn't seem that the intent, that there was any intent on actually staying at the short-term rental. What do you think about that? Like that's, well, well, <laughs> I well, mean, well, hold on. if we go back, if we go, if we start digging into the regulations, right, it's the right to use the property that's often in question, right? So by renting it, whether or not you actually drive to the property and sleep over, you oh, you man. rented you by leasing that property for that night, you own the right <laughs> to use that. Whether property. or not they stay. So if you have the right to use the property, it was the right to use and 
it was it was right to use the property um but the, i think the, the big question that was coming into play was whether or not like the repeated bookings would constitute as a single that's right, that's right. it's like continuity or something yeah um, but but i think what it came down to the premise though was like it doesn't matter whether you stay there or not it just matters whether or not you have the right because if i lease a property right so i lease a property across the street from me well now i legally have the the right to use it and no one else can right because i yeah. have that right so that's really so short term rental so to answer your original question, though, whether or not, you know, this would be kosher, so to speak, if you were to say, you know, Brandon says, hey, Justin, I need a booking on this new short term rental that I got. You stay at mine and I'll stay at yours for a few days before the end of the year. They actually address this in Section 280A. It's under 280A D2 Cap B. And when they're defining what is the definition of personal use of a unit, and it says any individual who uses the unit under an arrangement which enables the taxpayer to use some other dwelling unit, whether or not rental is charged for such unit. So essentially what that is saying is if you have this arrangement between you and another, even if it's not a a family member or something, it's a, a friend that has a unit, this code section is essentially saying that means that that person using your short-term rental will be deemed as personal use. Hmm. So that is kind of a twofold implication in that not only is it going to cause you issues with being able to establish your average period of customer use, because I would argue that if it's deemed personal, you can't be your own customer. But also, we know that the deductions that you're able to take for your rental are going to be prorated. And if we're using the scenario that we're talking about of, You've got hardly any rentals or any stays at the end of the year. If even a couple of days is under this quote unquote prearranged concept, you very well could be looking at limiting your deductions by 50, 75, 100% and basically making it moot. So you're rendering your uh, your deductions almost all the way down to zero by doing that. Let me just drill down into that real quick. So you're saying that like, even if like not talking about a borrow transaction where it's like saying you stay at my property, I stay at yours, there's no money exchanged. But if I actually rented the property out from you at fair market value, whatever that rate is, right in that market, and then you rented out mine at fair market rent, that's still, you know, based on that code section, is that still accurate there? Well, yes. hold on, because I, I thought I thought 280A and Section 469 were looked at independently. I don't know that there's a whole lot of like cross-referencing, right? So, so 280A typically pops up when we are personally using our vacation rental or, or our primary residence and we're renting that out. How does 280A in that instance cross-reference over to 469? Like, which one do you look at in what order? Yeah. So this is kind of like what we were saying before is I would say that, you know, we we do have two kind of considerations here is, is one, are we qualifying this property as a short-term rental? That answer, it could be yes or no, depending on everything we've previously talked about of, you know, average use and, and stays. But the, I would say the secondary kind of consideration there is also looking at 280A to see if, okay, are these days that say my friend has stayed at my unit, are they going to count as personal use days against me? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So it's almost like it could be still classifying as short-term rental, but it almost doesn't matter if we are able to achieve the short-term rental classification if we're having a massive, if not complete reduction in our deductions because of 280A. Interesting. So under 469, that could be kosher. Right. So Tom and I exchange days, but then you also have to look at 280A and it could not be. It could actually be a trap over there. So you have to look at 
kind of like you mentioned earlier, multiple code sections to try to figure out if your strategy actually makes sense. Right. Under Section 280A, <laughs> if I rent it to my brother, he's a related party. Right. That's a personal use day, even if it's at personal fair market day. value, and, unless it's a long-term lease, unless it's his primary residence. So just me renting out a vacation home to my brother makes that a personal use day, even if he pays fair market rent. That's pretty explicit in the, in the code section. So there, even though it would have a, an average rental period of seven days or less in that case, because it's personal use, it's a residence, and now you're capping the amount of losses you could take because you can't take a loss on personal residences. So that needs to be considered too, right. to Justin's point. Yeah, I didn't even consider the the family member. Is uh, there's many thorns that reside in 280A. <laughs> wow, fascinating. Yeah. So to kind of conclude this or bring this to a little conclusion here, the bottom line is if you're going to use the short-term rental loophole, you need to have an average stay of seven days or less to be able to meet that requirement to meet the exception, right? Otherwise, there's no way to prove that and you you can't meet the exception, right? So merely placing the property in service and getting it rent ready for its intended purpose, your short-term rental is not enough. And that's proven here in this task court case. So if you're out there going to use it, remember, get your guest stays in, get people to stay there, get at least two stays if you can, and make sure it's by true third parties, if you really want to bonify your position here and make sure there's no no ways, uh, like Matt Rappaport says, and I think like Justin mentioned, you don't want to get too cute with this stuff, right? There's a lot of tax savings on the line. You don't want to end up like this guy in the yacht who has to pay back taxes and penalties of five point whatever million, which is just uh, unfortunate for him. So. Insane. Insane. Well, Justin Shore is an advisory manager at our firm. Very sharp guy, as you can tell. Also looks the part. For all of our listeners, uh, he's well, my glasses just for you. <laughs> yeah, gla- glasses and a button-up shirt. Tom and I look like bums, man. We should uh, <laughs> we should be dressing up for these. <laughs> um, but th- thanks so much for listening. And Tom, t- tell a little bit about our new our, our relaunch of our membership group. You know, where where can they find some information on that? That's coming up. So. Yeah, right. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be relaunching our Tax Smart Insiders group. We took a lot of feedback from all the members of the Insiders group over the last year or two. And really what we found was is people wanted to not only get reliable tax advice from our team, but they also want to learn how to build tax efficient portfolios. They actually want to learn how to invest and actually scale their portfolios. In fact, we even had some people reach out to us looking for real estate coaching. So we said, you know what, we're going to go back, totally redesign the group. And now what we're going to be doing is we're going to be relaunching it. Not only are you going to be able to get answers to your tax questions from the private forum through live Q&As and also through paid calls with the advisors, but you're also going to have success paths that are going to help walk you through how to build a rental portfolio. Then we're bringing in real estate experts, all right, who are going to do deep dive master classes on specific topics that are going to be able to help you scale your portfolio. We're bringing in Taylor Brugna, one of the partners here at the firm, and he's got a lineup of truly exceptional master classes that are going to come up on how he built his long-term rental portfolio. We locked in the author of Airbnb for Dummies. He's going to be coming and doing a short-term rental master class, so that's going to be super exciting. He was actually on our podcast, uh, James Sevek. Uh, you can go back and check that out. It was just a few months ago. He's a founder, also founder of Airbnb Mastery, so that's going to be super, super pumped up for that. That's going to be awesome. And then, so yeah, if you want to learn more about this, you want to get in on the action, stay tuned for some emails. We'll be coming out. We'll be making announcements in that Facebook group. So go ahead and join that Facebook group so you don't miss out. But also when it when it is live, it's going to be going live in a few weeks. It's going to be www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free gift. We're giving away an awesome, amazing free gift. It's unbelievable. We're giving away almost $5,000 worth of stuff for free just for joining the group. It's uh, I can't believe we're doing it. It's insane. It's insane. So if you want to go ahead and do that, Check it out. Join the Facebook group for now. And uh, we'll catch you in the next episode of Tax Smart REI.
And just just so that everybody knows where that free group is, it is facebook.com slash groups slash Investors. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.